I've certainly come to believe that the single most important factor driving, I don't want to say success, but you know, driving any sort of meaningful change in your life, personal or professional is, is really chance, you know, luck. Um, and, and you're from IIT, so you'll, you'll appreciate this, but I see uh, hard work and smarts, you know, and I want to be very clear that being smart, working hard, like super necessary, but nowhere near sufficient. I think without the right chance showing up at your door, um, things just don't work out. Hey Vikram, thanks for agreeing to do this. Looking forward to the conversation. Pleasure to be here. So Vikram, we are um, doing a new question with our guests, uh, which is what Peter Thiel does with people he invests in or recruits. Um, what's one truth that very few people agree with you on that you actually believe in? All right, this is this is something that I think, uh, you know, not the kind of answer that Peter Thiel would expect and uh, also not something... I think most entrepreneurs would agree with, but at least over the course of my life, whatever personal, professional experiences I've had, I've certainly come to believe that the single most important factor driving, I don't want to say success, but, you know, driving any sort of meaningful change in your life, personal or professional is, is really chance, you know, luck. Um, and, and you're from IIT, so you'll, you'll appreciate this, but I see uh, hard work and smarts, you know, and I want to be very clear that being smart, working hard, like super necessary, but nowhere near sufficient. I think without the right chance showing up at your door, um, things just don't work out. And I mean, anecdotally, I can think of a number of incidents in my life, uh, but I can also point towards so many other entrepreneurs that I know um, that I know were really smart, worked really hard, but just weren't in the right place at the right time. You know, uh, I mean, I come from a, both me and Bhavan come from fairly middle class families and uh, never had kind of a huge network of people that we knew. Uh, I mean, you know, you right, you were at IIT, you know, the average person that comes to IIT, you don't come from right. big business families with a, with, with a lot of network and and then just in the early part of this business, the early few years of this business, we ran into some fairly meaningful, I would say, existential issues. Um, some, you know, and these sound kind of, these will probably sound trivial for um, most entrepreneurs and most businesses that take these things for granted, which is having the ability to collect money from your customer, you know, which in the online medium amounts to like payment channels, payment gateways, and the ability to talk to your customer, which in the online medium is uh, advertising. Um, right. And we weren't able to take those both very basic things, you know, I'd call like air and water for granted. And we ran through a, a number of times, primarily because the whole idea of skill gaming wasn't well understood in India. We ran through a number of occasions where the business came close to seeing existential issues. Um, and the way these issues, are, you know, just in retrospect now got involved, resolved successfully in our favor is just we randomly knew certain people uh, 
who were able to connect us to the right people and uh, you know and and somehow those issues got resolved i mean it was just completely random like when i look back at it you know um just just the absence of those few people that we randomly knew in our lives would have meant very likely not just our business but our industry not managing to survive and get I mean, today we are talking about a 2 billion dollar industry um right. we were at the we were at the very roots of it uh so anyway not not the kind of answer i thought you know you'd expect or peter thiel but certainly something i have come to believe firmly uh that you got to do your hard work you got to be smart but at the end of the day you need a ton of luck man uh, <laughs> i read this very interesting study and um you know i I'd also want to touch upon your aerospace background but um they were looking at how astronauts get selected for space missions and when they were factoring in various parameters um when they would look at their test scores and their physical ability and all the other parameters that were there um they were all almost the same right they were like at 97 97.5 97.6 and then when everyone had that similar score the factor that made the decision for the people who were finally selected was purely luck because that's what moved the needle in the end it was just random right so i actually think there is a lot of merit to what you say and i also realize why most people disagree with it because everyone wants this uh wants to believe the agency and you know hey effort will solve everything but um yeah i think the more the number of people in the world the more randomness becomes important i think um so i i do agree it's it's an that, that's that's a good point it's it's pure statistics at play right you need enough number of people working hard and being really smart so that you know the small percentage of people actually see success correct uh, you know that's it's just basic statistics at play over there uh, absolutely and then and then the few people who succeed and and poker doesn't work very differently right i mean poker is a great example like the classic classic player in poker is not an expert not the expert player but the classic player in poker is who believes when they win it was because of their skill and when they lose it was because of luck okay yeah. so, correct uh, so <laughs> um and that's how i think things things a lot of times things work out in life too like when you succeed you want to attribute it to all your hard work and all the smart things that you did yeah which absolutely. is true which is also true but not entirely true yep uh there's this really good book um speaking of poker called thinking in bets you may have read it um it's about how a poker player looks at the world with this um lens of luck and effort which contribute to outcomes right so uh, you know she calls it resulting which is exactly what you say that um when the result is bad it's luck when the result is good it's skill so the you know the real i would say the real ability in decision making today is to delineate or remove um the factor of luck and the factor of effort so i i, I do think it's i do think it's very important and it's a good segue into you know your career uh it's very atypical um obviously the start iit bombay and you know people would aspire or kill to um get into a top tier college but then you know you went after studying aerospace engineering you did economics and then you're finally running a gaming company how did that you know transition happen and uh, if you could walk us through that journey because it's quite fascinating yeah i mean the engineering part is easy you know like i mean i think this is the time that i was growing up in india well before 
when I went to high school in India, well before your time, um, you know, things weren't like they are today when there is so much opportunity in so many different areas. Like I think if you were if you were good in in math and physics, math and science, you pretty much went to engineering or became a doctor, right? Like that was it. That was that was that was what you did back then. And so I was fortunate, you know, that's what that's what my parents told me to do and it just seemed like an aspirational thing to do. So I went to IIT. Right. And then very quickly I think I mean, you know how the first two, three semesters are, they're just kind of a redo of what you've already done in 12th standard, just a little bit upgrade on that. So it was pretty easy. Right. Uh, and then by third, fourth semester, when engineering finally arrived, I was like, damn, man, this is not what I want to be doing. You know, um, so I started looking for other things. And I, I remember I used to see some of these like these guys who had this very cool persona, like sitting in the lounge. I was in Hostel 3 in IIT Bombay. And reading this yellow paper, and I was like, "What the heck is this yellow paper that they keep reading?" You know, um, and I got interested in it. So I I picked up I think the Economic Times one day and started reading stuff, but couldn't understand a lot of things in there. Uh, bought an Economics dis- Dictionary, started reading that, then got very interested. Eventually, got very interested in monetary policy, how the central bank makes decisions, what drives interest rates, employment, um, you know, what moves exchange rates. All of that stuff. Uh, and and to date, a very, very keen follower of economics. I mean, I still love economics as a subject, and that's what eventually took me to economics. I did my master's and then went on to do my PhD. Uh, but along the way, while I was studying economics, I think I realized that, and maybe things are different today, though I doubt it, but the gap between uh, academic economics and the real-world economics is pretty substantial, mm. um, you know. And uh, so I got interested in bounded rationality, which was, which you know, which was an idea that was proposed by Herbert Simon, uh, who eventually won a Nobel Prize, but not not for bounded rationality arguments. Um, and then got very interested, obviously, in uh, what um, Daniel Kahneman and Tversky, who was an economist, uh, you know, they obviously popularized the whole area of behavioral economics right. and. Um, loss aversion and all of this very fascinating stuff got 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 very interested in that um and and it was it was hard at that time at least things are different now but it was hard at that time to to pursue a career in in that area uh it was still fairly upcoming um and while all of this was happening i think while i was struggling with my disillusionment with academic economics um you know i started playing games i was always a gamer i grew up playing prince of persia and you know Mario Bros and all of that stuff. So I was, you know, always loved gaming, but kind of got back into it just to fill time. And uh, and on one occasion when I was playing games in at NYU in the computer lab, I remember I ran into Bhavin, who's my co-founder. He was incidentally doing the same thing, and he had reached a point of disillusionment for other reasons. <laughs> uh, so that was it. I mean, we just started talking about uh, stuff, and this this was a time when online poker had become very very popular in the U.S. Um, and, you know, we started thinking about like, Hey, this, this desire to play games, uh, match your wits, you know, play because poker is dead. Poker definitely requires a lot of skill, right? Um, you know, to work towards some sort of a reward that, that desire is not something that's Western or Oriental. It's, uh, it's everywhere. Right. And can we do something in India? So 
that was it. That was really it. And then slowly in bits and pieces, you know, things started kind of falling together in place. I understand. And can you talk about what Games 24-7 does and is for people who don't know? Yeah. I mean, so we we started with that with that vision. We said, you know, we want to... From the very beginning, we were, we were a little bit skeptical that the Indian gamer would, um, you know, on, that they would spend on games just for entertainment. I mean, and that turns out to be a challenge even today. Getting Indians to spend for entertainment, I think, you know, is is not being easy. Uh, so our thesis from day one was that, like, we need to provide Indians entertainment where there's something for them to get in return. We looked at the law, um, and it turned out that games of skill not only have legal sanction in India, but also constitutional sanction. Uh, and so our vision from day one was to, to kind of be focused on skill gaming and, and entertain Indians through games of skill. Um, and we have kind of largely stayed committed to that. We're now developing free-to-play games as well. I can talk about that a little bit later with kind of a broader focus on global markets. But at least largely we've stayed um, disciplined in our vision to entertain Indians through games of skill. Um, and, you know, so we started out, most people don't know this, but we started out with Rami and chess. Um, and we were quite naive, actually didn't realize how easy it is to cheat in chess, you know. Um, and we tried a lot of things in chess. Um, uh, but eventually, we realized there's just no way to do chess with real money prizes without without having cheating in it. So we, we stayed with Rami uh, for many, many years, did extremely well. I mean, the basic idea is you go online and you're playing Rami with other players, you know, in kind of a tournament format with entry fees and prizes. Um, and the business collects a small part of the price pool that's created, uh, usually around 10% as its, you know, service charge for providing the platform to players to play. Um, later we launched free to play games. We launched games on the Google Play Store. Um, again, but mostly, mostly stayed with, with card games, you know. Um, we launched Team Pati on the Google Play Store, but Team Pati not for real money to be clear, you know, this is, on the Google Play Store, you cannot do anything for real money. This is just free-to-play games with in-app purchases. Um, did very, very well. In fact, Ultimate Team Pati became, for some time, the number one crossing title on the Google Play Store. Um, and then eventually launched Fantasy Sports, then recently launched Carom, and now working on launching other games of skill. So, but all under the same format. The idea is the same. You know, players come and play contests with entry fees and prizes, and we collect small percentage of that price pool as our, you know, as our commission, as a service charge for, for providing that platform. Thanks a lot for providing that context. It's a perfect segue to transition into our topic for this week's episode, which is building a scientific gaming company out of India. Um, and, you know, fascinating. I, I think I've done a lot of different types of skill-based games. Uh, would like to, you know, well, I'm a chess player myself and a poker player, so quite familiar with it. But I, I think it's, Interesting to kind of go back to the early days of your journey, right? And when you started with chess and Rami, uh, easy to cheat in chess, but I'm sure you learned a lot out of that whole experience, right? And can you, can you share some of the, the learnings that you had from those, uh, kind of early days and, and how you, you pivoted in terms of how you are now selecting games going forward? Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it actually, so the learning we had is that when there is something to be won, you know, and if there is a way to, <laughs> there is a way to cheat the system, then people will do it, you know? Uh, right. People are very, very smart. 
I mean, even today. Yes, you know, which I think is fascinating because I think people try like some shorter time formats, right, so that people don't get an opportunity to cheat. But um, yeah, yeah, but all of that doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work because you can have on a separate, you know, even if on that machine you're not allowing any other chess game to run, a person could have a desktop, a separate desktop sitting on the side or a mobile phone on which they launch a chess game and and set the bot that they're playing against at like the highest level, right? And, and all you do is you play the move that the opponent is playing against you and then watch what the bot does and play that against the opponent, you know. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like, the, the bot at the highest level, the computer programs at the highest level are so good that even if you lose a little bit of time, uh, the, the skill advantage that you're getting is so substantial. Um, it is just and now... No, that totally makes sense. But this is maybe more a question for our listeners, right? But but why can't you do that in the case of a card game like like poker or or Rummy? So one challenge is that um, there exists today at least poker. Actually, one one of one of the one of the things that changes substantially with Rummy and poker, which is not there in chess, is that these are games of incomplete information. Um, I don't know. Chess is a game of perfect and complete information, right? You know exactly what what is going on, what the opponent is doing. In Rummy and Poker, you don't know what cards the opponent is holding. It's all probabilistic, right? So that... And people have probability models, right? And you can have a screen, like a computer giving you, you what can. are the chances a person can And, and you, but, you know that, that poker bots do exist, right? right. Um, but as far as I know, like at least... Com- and companies in the West actually work very hard to fight poker bots. So there are there are players who will try to install poker bots you know, on their computer that will actually decide what's the next move to make. Um, but technology has come a long way in terms of in terms of trying to stop that. With Rummy right now, I don't think anybody's managed to build, you know, intelligent Rummy bots. Harder, harder than to do in poker because the amount of uncertainty is significantly higher. You have multiple players holding 30 cards each, you know, as right. opposed to a bunch of players. A lot more cards. It is a challenge. It is a challenge, but like what we have learned that, that those are solvable problem uh, with tests with the kind of perfect information world you live in at least right now my view is it's practically unsolvable um, yeah no I, and that that makes a lot of sense and you know kind of want to dive into that aspect of it you know it's card games it's it, the games are asymmetric information human psychology is a big role um, and, and, and it plays a big role into behavior on the black uh, user behavior on the platform and so I was curious I mean you've obviously thought about it quite a lot uh, how do you engineer things around people's psychology? What have you learned over the years from, from looking at data or from your users? Any insights you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is where I think my my education in behavioral economics was definitely useful because the single most important thing that I learned was, which is what the first few years of any economics program doesn't teach you and teaches, in fact, the exact opposite of, is that human beings are perfectly rational and are maximizing <laughs> utility function subject to certain constraint, um, you know, and then you go on and read about content rationality and like how people actually behave. I mean, there's, you know, anybody who's read Kahneman knows uh, the, the innumerable number of examples where people don't behave rationally. I think the one of my favorites is, um, you know, if you're asking people to donate money uh, to a cause, let's say to hungry children in Africa, um, you do much better telling people, showing people a picture of 
kind of one child, a poignant picture of one child doing really, really poorly, like suffering, struggling in terms of getting higher donations than you do by telling them, you know, 100,000 children a day are getting only just one meal, you know, which is obviously a far more devastating fact uh, than the picture of one child. But that picture of one child does much better in, you know, kind of getting people to respond. Because I think as human beings, you know, I'm a numbers person, but I think as human beings, we are programmed to respond to stories rather than numbers. Uh, and and I think that that idea, I wouldn't say that all of that has had direct implications for how we run our gaming business. But what it did make me realize is don't bet on rational behavior. Uh, and the only way to understand deviations from rationality is to test. Um, you know, don't go in with a lot of assumptions. And so... Our whole machinery from day one has been constructed in a way that we test, test with as unbiased and objective a mind as we can. Um, and we test a lot, but then we're not testing to see which, which feature performs better in terms of monetization. Of course, that's super important, you know, mm-hmm. but our goal is always to uncover some underlying new truth about users that we didn't know before, uh, that we can build on and then deliver great experiences to our users having learned that truth. I can give you... Could you give us an example? Yeah, I'll, yeah. Give, you, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so these are very early days. Um, you know, we did not like... We did not like the interface of our product that much. Uh, we thought... And it was based on how, you know, how real money gaming products were also designed in the West. And we decided to change the interface to to make it easier for the users to... Um, to use our product. Just it was a UX change, you know. It was not supposed to be anything more than a UX change. Um, and we saw a substantial increase in uh, in monetization. Uh, and we were like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, like we've never seen this kind of a U- just UX change result in that kind of increase in monetization. Just a quick question before you add. When you say increase in monetization, you mean more people putting money into the platform? Or converting more people into paid users? More people, well, the, the same number of people monetizing more. It's a good question. Um, but users basically engage more and, and playing more and, um, and, and spending more. Um, and we just couldn't understand how a change in UX could do that much. So we dug deeper and deeper and deeper. And what we found out was, um, that by making the UX simpler, we had we had in a very meaningful way. So users spend a bunch of time, you know, they, they spend time coming onto your platform, then they spend time looking for a game, then they obviously play a game, and at the end of the cycle, in in real money gaming, users might also use time to withdraw money from the platform that they have that they have won. Um, what we realized is that by making the UX simpler, what we had, users weren't spending more time playing. On the plat, they were not spending more time on the platform. What we had done is we just okay. cut down the amount of time the users were spending on finding a game, making it all the way through the clutter. Uh, so they had more time on their hands to play, um, and they were willing to spend more. So you always were willing to spend more. It's just that they were not willing to give us more time. And we realized one of the most fundamental truths in entertainment, which is that time is the most limited commodity that you know, that exists, that that's, that's, you know, that users won't give you more of. It's very hard to get more. Amazing. 
Uh, That's like, incredible. And I'm sure that insight must have really impacted your metrics, right? I mean, it, was, are you no longer looking at engagement as a metric? Is, is monetization your, your key, key metric as a company? No, in fact, on the contrary, we looked at, we look at engagement a lot because we want to make sure that we make everything around the game super simple and easy so that people spend the most amount of time doing what they like to do, you know. I mean, even the reason, you know, the whole, I think the idea of recommendations across the world has worked so well is because it cuts down the time that a user takes. The better I can recommend to you, the lesser time you're taking to actually find what you want to do next, you know. Um, so it's a, it's a very fundamental truth that, that we have built on over the years, you know, quite substantially. Another one was, and this was also conventional wisdom in the real money gaming world, which has completely changed, and I would like to believe we were pioneers in changing that, is that, you know, in the real money gaming world, you actually made it hard for users to withdraw money out of the platform. Um, because you operators always worried that once the money left the system, like people would play lesser. Um, and it sounds very logical and sounds very rational, but we kind of challenged that notion and we said, listen, at the end of the day, people are playing for rewards, right? They're playing, the, one of the main motivation is to get a reward at the end. Um, and it just so doesn't make sense. It's very counterintuitive that they actually don't really experience that reward in terms of seeing that money in their bank account, you know? So we challenged that notion and we said, you know what, let's actually make it really easy to withdraw money uh, and not hard. And that was, that was so much appreciated by the players, not just the qualitative feedback we received, but also, you know, kind of them coming back and playing more because they appreciated the platform more. They trusted the platform more. Today, it's like, it's part, this, this I'm talking is six, seven years ago. Today, it's part for the course. Like everybody offers what's called instant withdrawals. Um, but we were, we were pioneers doing that and building all kinds of risk assessment systems back in 2013, 14 to make sure that players could, you know, kind of withdraw money easily. And it's not, it sounds very simple. You, you would think like it's a one click thing, but in real money gaming, it's actually very hard because there's a lot of things you need to check for before you allow players to withdraw. There's KYC checks, there's fraud checks, there's money laundering that you need to worry about. All of those things need to be automated. Uh, you need to automate everything to make sure that people can withdraw money in a second by picking a part. Uh, no, I, I remember around 2010, I guess, <laughs> when I was uh, in college playing poker online and it would take you uh, two weeks to get your check in the mail and right. it, it just totally killed the incentive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, kind of building on that a little bit, you've been in the industry 16 years, uh, you've seen it change a lot, especially in India, you know, um, gaming has grown exponentially. Can you tell us about some of the trends that you've seen over the years and, and you know, some of the bigger trends that you're seeing? I mean, I think the most transformational change that I've seen uh, without a doubt was uh, desktop to mobile. Uh, like, I think we forget how big a transformational change that was. Um, and it, it was very, very rapid. I mean, I remember, I, I remember we had like between 10 and 20 million smartphone users in 2013 and then 2014-15 we were up to 100 million and I think that when it comes to gaming like I, that was the single biggest transformational change that that I can think of. Uh, the next big one was the was was in 2017 I think when Geo launched and and made data basically free and we saw massive massive uptick during that time uh, in user base. I think you know we passed data 
uh, has made an enormous change when it comes to games. So 2014, when we launched our first game on the Google Play Store, we had to be ultra careful. We could not be like the mandate the team had is you cannot have a game larger than 15 MB. Like users, you're going to lose so many users if the game is larger than 15 MB. You go to the Google Play Store, Play Store today, like 50, 100 MB games are par for the course. Like, you know, even larger many times than that. Um, and I think that's a very, very strong virtuous cycle that's been created because obviously the, the larger the, the app size that a user is willing to download, uh, the more high quality content I can put into the app, uh, which means the user kind of enjoys that content more, spends more. Um, and, and that in turn allows me to create even higher quality content. Uh, very, very, when it comes to the larger gaming industry, I think those I would say are the two big transformational changes. One is just mobile and the second is data just becoming very cheap, very fast. Um, and that's going to, that, that I think is going to continue to drive things going forward. The other question I had for you was around regulation. I mean, you know, games of scale are now legal for money. People have spoken about, you know, games of chance and online casinos coming up in India. Uh, so, so two parts here really. First, what's it like working with the regulators? You know, the pioneer, you've probably seen a lot of that regulation evolve and, and what does the future look like? Do you think games of chance will be legal in India? Will that become a, a big industry? You know, where do you see it? Yeah, I don't, at least in the short run, I, I think games of chance becoming legal Unlikely. I mean, I, I'm, I wouldn't bet on where the political winds blow. Uh, but, um, I mean, states obviously are free to legalize games of chance, but, um, and, you know, Goa has, Goa has done some of that with offshore casinos. Sikkim has that. Um, but I think games of skill definitely have a very bright future right now based on our discussions with regulators. Um, they've been very active in the, at least in the last couple of months. You know that the uh, Honorable IT Minister Rajiv Chandrasekhar called for a meeting with the entire gaming industry uh, and, you know, was very supportive in terms of trying to create a policy that will um, that will help the gaming industry to grow, to innovate. But at the same time, you know, I think the government's key interest always is consumer protection. So they want to find that balance. Um, so there's everything that we have heard from the central government seems like there's a, there's a need there's a realization that we need to regulate, but there's also the realization that um, that regulation needs to be positive, needs to be constructive. Uh, we have faced, as you know, some challenges at the state government level. Um, you know, in, in certain states, and certain laws were passed that were eventually struck down by court uh, as unconstitutional. Uh, but eventually, even at the state level, I think there are multiple states now where our view is that states are starting to see um, Especially in the online world, right, where um, where there are no geographic borders, where over time even the rupee will not be, be a control anymore because you have crypto. Uh, there's just no point trying to ban because all that happens is that you shut down legitimate operators and flood the market with gray, you know, the gray market operators, um, and that's bad for consumers. That's bad for the government because tax collections go down, and obviously. That's bad at the end for the industry and employment and all the growth opportunities that exist in this sector, you know, which I think can be a, a very meaningful contributor to the Prime Minister's vision of a trillion-dollar digital economy. India can be a gaming superpower given where we stand today, right? So, all in all, I'm very positive about uh, where we are heading on the regulatory side, but it's going to take time. It's going to have its speed bumps, for sure. And you touched on it, so... 
One more question. What about the crypto gaming industry? I, I you know, you hear more and more about uh, well, all kinds of games. I think in poker now, and <laughs> people being able to create random numbers on a blockchain. Do you think that that's going to impact your industry, uh, either way, market share? Or is that a totally different new market that's kind of coming into that? Yeah, you know, it's we're we're looking a lot into this. I think one of the challenges right now. Um, by the way, if you if you watch the global crypto gaming industry, it's very interesting. It's really not a crypto gaming industry. It's really an offshoot of the crypto industry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you know the the, the the fortunes of crypto gaming industry, as they're called, seem to rise and fall with with crypto. Yeah, on the price of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. With the Bitcoin falling substantially, you know, over the last few months, the fortunes of a lot of crypto gaming companies have also fallen, and and the reason for that is that a lot of crypto gaming is actually crypto speculation right now. In fact, almost most of it. Um, if crypto gaming is to become mainstream, which means that crypto gaming has to appeal to gamers, right? Not just crypto speculator. Uh, that's a different ballgame. It has to appeal to gamers in mass. Um, then I think that the single biggest challenge that we run into is just the whole process of getting into the crypto world. Um, you know, it's not... It's not super easy. Like it's not something that that a uh, you know somebody somebody running a mom and pop store uh, can can do like that. It's cumbersome to get into the crypto world. Um, so that's that's something that I think the globally like needs to be solved for for crypto to be adopted by gamers. Because mind you, again, gamers, right? Like what I talked about in terms of time, they don't like any friction. They just they just want their entertainment and they want it fast. And the crypto world does have a lot of friction today. You know, uh, the same thing is true for VR, you know, um, like great advances can come in gaming through that, but still plenty of friction there. You still need this cumbersome device to, to get into the VR world, you know, so unless we, there, there's no, there's, I, I don't think there's any form of entertainment that goes like mass scale and sees explosive growth unless you remove friction. Like there cannot be those kind of frictions in the way. Um, you have to remove those for people to adopt them, you know, en masse. Uh, we'll get there. I just don't want to speculate about when and how. One more question. And you've touched on this a few times. So I wanted to understand a bit about monetization. You mentioned that you, you take a rake from, or it's not, but, but you take a percentage of, of, of the winnings, like, like most gaming companies do. Is that most of your, uh, kind of biggest revenue stream? What other avenues of monetization have you explored and, uh, yeah, any insights that you can share on that would be fascinating for listeners. Oh, that's definitely almost all of our revenue stream. Uh, almost all of it. Yeah, I mean, even people are spending. Uh, I know, I know, Netflix is is moving in a different direction now. You know, they're they're considering ads. Uh, but at least in the gaming world, if people are spending, the idea of showing them ads is pretty much anathema. Like you know, you want to. Um, I think some some companies have explored the idea of a subscription model. Um, I personally I don't think it works because the whole idea of real money gaming is you know I want to enter a contest now I'm paying this to enter the contest now and 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 you know that entitles me to the possibility of winning so much so if I if I do well in the contest um, the whole idea of a subscription model I think behaviorally goes against that so um, yeah. I mean that's that's pretty much all of our revenues. I don't see that model changing significantly, to be honest. The other side of that, you know, customer acquisition uh, is that mostly PTC or have you, have you tried any influencer marketing? I've seen a lot of these 
you know, like, like poker companies now, because I guess it's almost pop culture around, you know, poker stars and stuff, doing a lot of this influencer marketing. Uh, so yeah, curious as to how you guys get customers. And I mean, it's it just like, any, any, I think any part of the, any part of the digital industry now, influencer marketing is becoming more and more effective for sure. Um, so it's still growing, but it's it's starting to become very significant. It's particularly effective in fantasy sports. Right, right, exactly. Um, because, <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you have people who are respected as, uh, you know, kind of respected for their ideas on cricket, um, who, who are understood to be, to have good knowledge of cricket and, and, and fantasy sports is all about selecting the right team. Um, so certainly, I think over time in fantasy sports, the whole influencer marketing bid uh, has become uh, more and more significant. Uh, we're starting to see that in other games as well, but uh, and it'll probably catch up to the curve, like as far as fantasy is concerned. But as as the idea of experts grows, you know, these are all games of skill, and as more and more experts are identified in these games of skill. And if you look to the West, like certainly all games of skill industries have evolved that way. You talked about poker, you know. I mean, there are real experts in poker that people respect and listen to and watch. Uh, I think I think that, you know, I mean, in a very large, kind of larger macro sense, that's what that's what influence, good influencers in, in games of skill would be like. People who are actually good at the game, who have good advice to give people and people are, are listening to them. Uh, and that in turn results in, you know, good customer acquisition through those kind of influencers. Uh, so certainly a big, I think a big part of uh, any company's user acquisition strategy going, going forward. Awesome. That, that was fascinating, uh, Vikram. Uh, actually wanted to use this as a, you know, to talk about what are future plans. You just became a unicorn this year. Congratulations on that. Thank You're you. also profitable. Um, I guess an advantage of, Having been at this for a long time would be growing, I would say, in a more sustainable manner. Um, so what's, what are your future plans? Um, why did you raise the money? Um, you know, given you were already able to generate enough to keep the company going, uh, there's obviously something you're planning in the near term. So, uh, what are thoughts there? I'd say three things about like why we raise the money, right? Three things that are really important. Radar right now. First is, and you know, uh, this, in the in the gaming world, it's a well-known fact. In the outside of it, probably not that much. That um, most of the rummy market, most of the rummy market today sits in the south of it. The north mm. is largely untapped. Um, right. And we definitely want to introduce. We think rummy is an awesome game. You know, it's a fantastic game. And there's no reason people in the north shouldn't be playing it as much as people in the south are. Uh, so part of the efforts are going to be to introduce Rami to the North and uh, maybe you're aware, maybe you're not, but we did launch our first campaign with Ritik Roshan back in February and then recently, you know, Rahoek Kadamage, the idea being, you know, to play Rami, uh, you got to stay one step ahead of your competitor and if you're somebody right. to do that, then playing Rami is it. So, so part of it is that, which I think is starting to work very well with seeing increasing adoption of Rami in the North. Um, part of it is to continue to compete on fantasy sports. We're now, without a doubt, you know, dominant number two operator in the fantasy sports and space. And we want to take increasing market share in, in the fantasy sports space as well. Um, the third, which is actually, which ties to, um, 
you know, essentially how we run our business and what defines our culture, which we call the science of gaming. Uh, you know, I kind of talked about part of it is obviously being very scientific, understanding user truth through methods of science. But then the other part is like, hey, it's great. I understand who my user is and what they want, but I need the technology and the AI to be able to deliver that to users in a hyper-personalized way. Two users are very, very different. So a lot of our investment on the technology and AI side goes into one, determining how our users are different and two, then delivering unique personalized experiences to them. Um, and the last but not the least, I would say, is that what the growth of, and this is not just for us, but generally what the growth of the skill gaming industry in India is allowing uh, operators like us to do is to really turn India into a market that produces world-class content. So we now have a, you know, free-to-play game studio um, that I can tell you. I mean, we haven't put out any game yet. I think 2023 will be the first year when we actually put out, launch a game. But we're now producing content that will complete the global company. Uh, that's what we're doing. So moving our borders beyond India, starting to generate content for global markets and, and really kind of work towards, again, the Honorable Prime Minister has talked about it repeatedly, that India can become a gaming uh, you know about the AVPC uh, initiative. Um, and we really believe that. So we are certainly, you know, investing in that area as well, content generation. And you've been an entrepreneur all your career, post-academics. Uh, um, our closing question is, and why we are called Founders Unfiltered, what's one piece of unfiltered feedback you've received during your journey which changed the way you looked at things? Uh, brutal and honest is yeah. recommended. There's many, but if I have to give you one, um, I would say don't let yourself get in the way of doing what's right. I think a lot of times, you know, and founders are very passionate people and they also, all, all of us, right, who are passionate and smart, uh, are very opinionated, have big egos, um, and sometimes that gets in your way, um, you know, and, and it's certainly, I've seen it get in my way many times, like, you know, where your passion for something, your emotion for something, how you feel about something gets in the way of you doing what's right and keeping yourself focused on what are you here to do. I'm not here to prove you wrong or somebody else wrong uh, or make my point uh, or be more popular. I'm here to entertain Indians to games. Like, so just have to keep my eye on that ball. Like, that, that the end user and entertainment is what I'm here to do and nothing else really matters. Um, it's, it sounds very simple, but it's extraordinarily hard to do. Yeah. Um, I, I have found myself many times in the past and in retrospect realized you know, I, I kind of got in the way of, uh, of doing what was right, uh, being carried away with just something that I felt very passionately about. So you know, had very strong feelings. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Vikram, thank you for doing this. Uh, really loved the conversation, learned a lot. Um, and look forward to what you guys do next. Pleasure. It was very, you know, Great conversation. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you so much for tuning in to Founders Unfiltered. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Join us next week for another episode of AJVC Unfiltered, where we talk about our latest piece 